0: Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. crime that we'll be talking about today occurred in the year 1898 and as always here's what else happened that year on february the 12th the automobile belonging to henry lindfield of brighton rolls out of control down a hill in pearly london and hits a tree thus he becomes the world's first fatality from an automobile accident on a public highway April 5th saw Annie Oakley promoting the services of women in combat situations with the United States military. On this day, she writes a letter to President McKinley offering the government the services of a company of 50 lady sharpshooters who would provide their own arms and ammunition should war break out with Spain. In the history of women in the military, there are records of female US revolutionary and Civil War soldiers who enlisted using male pseudonyms. But Oakley's letter represents possibly the earliest political move towards women's rights for combat services in the United States military. On June the 7th, William Ramsey and Morris Travers discover neon at their laboratory in University College London after extracting it from liquid nitrogen. August the 28th, American pharmacist Caleb Bradham names his soft drink Pepsi-Cola. And lastly, on December the 18th, Gaston de choulot les sets the first official land speed record in an automobile, averaging 63.15 kilometres or 39.24 miles per hour over one kilometre or 0.62 miles. This occurred in France. But the event we're going to be talking about today occurred on the 17th of January, 1898, when a friendly potato salesman on his way home from market in Bristol stopped off at the village of Wick and befriended a teenager in the pub before they both set off together on what would be a fatal journey.
1: Word of the Week.
0: And the word I give you today is... Blue Fire, which was originally the name of a special effect used in Victorian theatres in which a mixture containing sulphur would be ignited to create an eerie blue glow on stage. The effect astonished audiences at the time who had never seen anything like it before, hence Blue Fire came to be used to describe anything equally amazing or sensational, or that astounded an audience. In Lawford Gates Magistrates, before the Duke of Beaufort, Albert Griffith, aged 17, was brought in on the charge of murdering James Ricketts in Wick, just outside of Bristol, on the 17th of January, 1898. Albert Griffith was single and working for Hall and Fitzgerald, fancy tour merchants of Victoria Street, and the victim, James Ricketts, aged forty two, was a farmer living at Toghill Farm near Wick Village. James had gone to Bristol to deliver a cartload of potatoes and was just heading back home at four PM. He had stopped off at the Carpenter's Arm, Two Mar Hill, for a drink, where he was joined by a strange man whom he eventually left with, Whilst they had been in the pub, James had shown the man his canvas bag full of money from the sale of the potatoes. A crowd had gathered outside the court, just to get inside and watch the proceedings, and some even stayed outside throughout. In court, Griffith looked around him sheepishly, then covered his face and started to sob. A chair was put in front of him and he sat down silently crying, while the charge was read out. Mr Albert Essery, Albert's solicitor, said that he had been instructed to appear on behalf of the poor little boy, as he described him, and pleaded not guilty. Mr Essery went on to say that a lot of the evidence had been produced at the inquest, but there was still more to share. The court heard how, after the deed was done, Albert fled to Birmingham and handed himself into the police force there. He walked straight in and said...
1: I've come to surrender myself on a charge of murder.
0: The officer at the desk at the time said that it was a very serious thing for him to say. Albert only replied,
1: Yes, I know it is, but it's true. I'm sorry I did it.
0: And at this point, Griffith burst into tears, and then he carried on with his story.
1: I killed him with a butcher's knife. It belonged to my father. I don't know what made me do it. I read the account of the murder in the newspapers. It says it was done by a shoemaker's knife, but that's not correct. The murder has preyed on my mind, and I was determined to surrender myself.
0: It was Superintendent John Matthews from the Gloucestershire Constabulary and stationed at the Staple Hill station who was asked to bring Griffith back to Bristol to face charges. Matthews told the court that he had received a telegram from Chief Constable Farndale in Birmingham, which read, Albert Griffiths, age 18, of 13 Church Street, Barton Hill, Bristol, has surrendered himself here for committing the murder of James
1: Ricketts at Wick on Monday the 17th. Please send for him.
0: While Griffith was in Birmingham, he'd been searched and a prayer book was found on him containing several handwritten entries, such as...
1: Killed a million men in one route. Murdered 5,000 pigs all by myself. Murdered 10,000 bullocks with another man to help me. (laughs) Word on the street.
0: This week sees us making our way to Stowden Close in BS 16. This was the name of an ancient manor house in the parish of Winterbourne, occupied by the Sturden family. One Hugo de Sturden was commonly known as Hickory Stern, or Stern, the hero of Purcell's song, O oh, Who Will O'er The Dance So Free? He was reputed to be a highwayman, and died circa 1340 and is buried in Winterbourne Church. When Superintendent Matthews and Griffith arrived in Bristol, and the charge was entered into the sheet, Griffith made a written statement, which he signed. Matthews asked Griffith to be remanded in Chipping-Sodbury. Griffith's statement was read out in court by the clerk.
1: Albert Griffiths warehouseman I live at Barton Hill with my father and mother last Monday week I took from my father's shop a butcher's knife which I used for boning out I went to the Lord Rodney had half a pint of bitter beer got up in a cart with a man and rode just beyond warmly we were talking friendly along the road when I stabbed him I don't know the man i had never seen him before and I did not know that I had killed him until I saw in the Daily Press at my father's house on the following morning. I was afraid of staying in Bristol, pawned my great coat and went to Birmingham. Signed, Albert Griffiths, 26th of January, eighteen ninety eight
0: Witnesses were called by the prosecution. James Hook, a collier, identified Griffith as a man he saw with the victim in the pub, John Fox, a slaughterman, who was employed by Griffith's father in the shop in Winstanley Street, said the knife found in the cart was like one that was missing from the shop. It was around 7pm on the 17th of January when villagers in Wick heard groaning and James Ricketts was found wounded in a hedge his horse having galloped off towards home. To the onlookers, it was quite obvious that James was dying, and the police and a doctor were called, but he died before they arrived. In the cart was a blood-stained butcher's knife, which was bent. It was later found out that it was damaged when it hit a rib during the attack. Another blow had penetrated the wall of the heart by about an inch. It was Sergeant Harris's job to search pawn shops following the prisoner's admission and discovered the greatcoat in Frank Witt & Co. Pawnbrokers at 24 Cumberland Street, which was quite away from the Griffiths' home. When the coat was searched, an American knife, false moustache and false nose or mask was found in the pockets. Albert's employer, Henry Edgar Fitzgerald, was questioned by Mr Essary, the defence and Mr. R. H. Wainsborough for the prosecution. Each trying to decipher what Griffith's mental state was before the incident. I take it that it was not until September of
1: last year you had occasion to find any fault with him? Up to that time he had been perfectly... ...well conducted? Yes. Was not his general manner quiet? Yes, it was. Civil and respectful? Yes, especially so up to that day. And then a change occurred? Yes. Did he then seem to become excitable? No. Not at all. Simply quite indifferent to everything. Was there any indication of loss of memory? No. The stock books were well kept up to the time the prisoner left their employee, with regard to the work with those books. Witness might say that there was practically none for the last few months of the year. Did you notice any evidence of insanity about the boy? None whatever. Or even eccentricity? No. Of course, when I mentioned indifference to everything, I meant he seemed callous and careless, and when spoken to, he did not take any notice. But there were no signs of insanity.
0: Fitzgerald later went on to tell the court that, due to Albert's behaviour, he had fired him on the 27th of November the year before, after four years of good service. Mr Essery told the court that there was no motive for the murder. The pair had left the Lord Rodney as friends. They got into a cart as friends, and rode off together as friends. There was no evidence of a quarrel, and the money was all accounted for on the victim, as well as a watch and chain. Essery then went on and said that both of Griffith's parents had a family history in lunacy. An aunt, the sister of his mother, died 20 years previously in the Stafford County Asylum, and an uncle of his father was also on two occasions admitted to the same asylum for considerable lengths of time. He then continued with this line of defence by saying that Griffith had been injured in two separate accidents. The first had been eight years previously when he'd been hit in the head by a cricket ball. And the second had been two years before when he fell from a moving train at the station between the train and the platform seriously injuring himself, particularly his kidneys. Mr Essary then continued to build on his plea of insanity by reading out an extract from the defendant's notebook, a reason why he would have been carrying a knife.
1: To gather holly in fields with a basket and knife.
0: This notebook had been found in the defendant's bedroom after he'd left home. Mr Essary went on to say that, Although the knife was exactly the sort that would be used for that purpose, Griffith's mind was broken up and he submitted that when the murder occurred, Griffith did the act absolutely without mental responsibility. He went on to say that a sane man would run and hide, but the prisoner walked calmly down the road and even chatted with a man named Dix before travelling on a tram car into Bristol. Arriving back home around 8pm, and going to bed. The father, Thomas Griffith, openly wept whilst being questioned in court. Many other witnesses stated that Griffith was a very likeable and decent boy. James Quinton from Downend National School, James Oles of 8 Avondale Road, St. George, and Reverend J.W. Down, the Vicar of Downend. During the court case, Dr Lionel Weatherly from Bath was called and said he had examined the prisoner for a considerable time and concluded that he was suffering from the incubation stage of melancholia, which in Griffith's case was produced from the hereditary predisposition. One of the symptoms was morbid, uncontrollable impulses such as striking people, breaking windows and sudden indecent acts. The prosecution
1: continued the questioning of the doctor. Is there any outward evidence of insanity? There is outward evidence of melancholia supervening. There was no outward signs of insanity? No outward signs of mania. There were of the disease of which I am telling you. I arrived at my conclusion not only from what I absolutely saw, but what I heard from his mouth as to his feeling and actions during some months previous to the crime. Have you no doubt that the prisoner fully knew and appreciated what he was doing when he made the confession to the police? Oh yes, I have no doubt that the prisoner fully knew and appreciated the statement made in his confession to the police.
0: Initially at the Gloucester Assizes on Monday the 14th of February, Griffith was sentenced to death for the crime. But the jury recommended mercy and later the solicitor for the prosecution received a letter from the solicitor to the Treasury that Griffith's sentence be reduced to penal servitude for life. The victim, James Ricketts, was buried in Cold Ashton Holy Trinity Church. As a side note, here's an interesting piece of information about the Carpenter's Arms in Wick, the pub near where James Ricketts was found after his attack. When the pub was altered years ago, in the back of one of the bars, an old fireplace and wall were removed. Amongst the foundations, a decapitated female skeleton and other skeletal remains were found. It is thought that they were camp followers of the Cromwellian Wars, Obviously, for some reason, they were killed and hidden behind the thick walls. Rumour has it that Cromwell's army stayed at the inn before continuing up to Lansdowne. Personally, I couldn't find any information about either skeletons or Cromwell, but it does make the pub sound a little bit more interesting.
1: Everyone, I'm Andre and I'm Mariah and we're the hosts of pretty nice the weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything like horoscopes why rain is the worst our favorite Broadway musicals the best songs of all time embarrassing Facebook photos elevator etiquette breakfast revolutions And a whole bunch of other nonsense. If you love a podcast that feels like you're kicking back with your BFFs or just hanging out and chatting with friends, Pretty Nice is for you. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or your preferred podcatcher. We're also online at prettynicepodcast.com, on Instagram at prettynicepodcast, Twitter at prettynicepod, and Facebook at prettynicepodcast. Bye!
0: You think gas prices are expensive. Have you seen chimneys? They're through the roof
1: back in the day facts back in the day facts facts. facts.
0: And so we start with the fourth of March 1493 when explorer christopher columbus arrives back in lisbon portugal aboard his ship nina from his voyage to what are now the bahamas and other islands in the caribbean the 5th of march 1836 and samuel colt patents the first production model revolver the 35 caliber as a teenage seaman Colt had carved a wooden model of a revolving cylinder mechanism and he later perfected a working version that was patented in England and France in 1835 and then the United States the following year. But it wasn't just firearms that he was involved in. He devised an electrically discharged naval mine, the first device using a remotely controlled explosive, and he conducted a telegraph business that utilised the first underwater cable. Colt's patent firearms manufacturing company also became famed for its production of the Gatling gun, a hand-cranked machine gun invented by Richard J. Gatling, and for a series of John M. Browning-designed semi-automatic pistols, most notably the Model 1911. Having been sold by Colt Industries in 1989, the Colt Firearms Division was reconstituted as Colt's manufacturing company. The 6th of March, 1836, and it was the Battle of the Alamo. After 13 days of fighting, 1,500 to 3,000 Mexican soldiers overwhelmed the Texan defenders, killing somewhere between 182 to 257 Texans, including William Travis, Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett. On the 7th of March, 1975, RCA releases Young Americans, David Bowie's ninth studio album, recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and New York City, featuring appearances by John Lennon on two tracks. It peaks in the US charts at number nine and number two in the UK. On the 8th of March, 1973, Paul and Linda McCartney are fined £100 for growing cannabis. And lastly, on the 9th of March... 1959 the barbie doll makes its debut at the american international toy fair in new york and so we've come to the end of another show but don't worry i'll be here same place same time next week and as always i'm going to take a moment to thank the people who really brought today's story to life And this week we have Molly Jeffries and Julian Kendall from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Steve Shepherd, as well as Tony Allen, Griff and Ryan. Thank you, one and all. go I'd like to offer huge congratulations to one of our regular voices Joe Wilson who is getting married this Saturday the 4th of March to the lovely Becky congratulations to you both Thank you once again for listening to me Alice on the Backtracker History show If you'd like to get in touch with me you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me, because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.